know, I was just thinking about uh, kind of today and our gathering. And sometimes uh, we come into uh, a Sunday morning gathering with a, with a great deal of enthusiasm, right? And other times we limp in. Uh, I had one of those limping weeks this week where, um, you know, you, you are particularly aware of your weakness and your neediness before the Lord. And I was just thinking about kind of this moment right now. Um, man, I, I just want to ask the Lord to kind of set aside my low expectation. Have you ever been there? Have you ever had low expectations of the Lord? Your heart is, is filled with a measure of unbelief. And uh, man, I was thinking about the God that we're singing about and how really evil unbelief in my heart is. And so can I just ask right now that we would just kind of lay it on the table and say, Lord, we want to set aside our unbelief right now. We want our hearts to be filled with faith and we want you to do beyond what we ask or think. I came in here just expecting to do church as normal, but Lord, would you meet with us this morning? Man, we're about to do a weird thing. Just, just stop and think about it for a minute. We're about to like drink juice out of like a little cup and eat like the worst cracker in the world. Um, and if you're like a, if you've not been around the church, you're like, that's super weird. Like just think if you had no context of that, that would be a very, very weird thing. But I believe based on the scripture and particularly the one we're going to look at this morning, that God wants to meet us in it. I don't think the cup and the bread are magic, but I do think they are a means that God has built into the life of his church to remind us of his work on our behalf. And so can you just pray with your limping pastor this morning that God would do something way beyond my power to do, that he would show himself for who he is as we sang the God who is enough. Can we pray together this morning? Lord Jesus, we come to you in the name of the name that is above all names. And we come needy, dependent, weak, and insufficient, but not hopeless. Oh Lord, your grace is enough and I pray as we open your word today that you would speak to your people. Lord, hide this shepherd and help them to hear the good shepherd this morning. And I pray that you would open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law. In the precious name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen. And I didn't pray to Eric or William. Oh, man. Those Pastor Rodisms, I love them. God's name is not Eric. Yeah, okay. Um, Sorry if your name is Eric. No offense, right? Uh, uh, the title of the message today is just symbolic. And uh, we're going to look at the Lord's table here, which was one of the great symbols that the Lord has given his people. And you know what? We're all familiar with symbols. We live in a symbol-laden world. Some symbols are rather self-evident, like this one right here. Um, this symbol, it's, it's very clear what it means because it's kind of just a pictorial representation of that thing. So it's obvious this is a men's room and it's obvious this is a women's room. 
Other symbols are a little bit more abstract. Take, for instance, this one right here. Like, who thought up the idea that money or dollars in the United States would be represented by a S with lines through it? Like, that doesn't really make sense. There's no connection to reality. And yet, it's become a symbol that when you look at it, you immediately know what it means. But here is the awesome thing about symbols. You know, in just a glimpse or a glimmer, a symbol is able to carry a great deal of meaning all in one second, right? When you see a symbol, suddenly you get a glimpse of it and all this information is transferred to you. For instance, take this symbol right here. Well, this is obviously the symbol for what? The Olympics. But when you see that symbol, you don't just think, oh, Olympic games held here. All kinds of meaning is poured into that symbol. I mean, you think of determination. You think of excellence. You, you think of even world unity that is poured into this symbol. In other words, symbols have a powerful ability to carry lots of meaning. Unsurprisingly then, the Lord being the Lord, and not Eric or William, the Lord being the Lord, he built symbols into the storyline of Scripture to help communicate massive amounts of truth to us, to remind us of who he is and what he has done through his work and person. For instance, the rainbow after the flood symbolized God's promise to humanity. The tabernacle and later the temple came to symbolize God's presence among his people. Oil symbolized the spirit's power. Clouds and thunder symbolized God's majesty and might. Babylon symbolized rebellion against the Lord. The dragon symbolized Satan himself. A winepress symbolized God's wrath. And the sun itself represented or symbolized Jesus and his righteousness. So in light of all that rich biblical history and all the images and symbols that we see poured throughout the scripture, it is not surprising that God in his grace and in his wisdom said to his people, the New Testament people of God, his church said, I'm going to entrust you with a couple of symbols that I want to play a major role in your life, in your life together to remind you of what I have done on your behalf. And those two symbols that God has entrusted to his people, if you've been around the church for very long, you know what they are. They are baptism and the Lord's table or communion. These two symbols are things that God has entrusted to his people to remind us of who he is. Today, we want to look particularly at the Lord's table, which, stop and think again, it's a very strange thing if you don't have any background to it. You know, this is a very unique or unusual tradition, but it's important in the life of God's people. But here's the danger. Like with any tradition, you can do it for so long and actually forget why you're doing it. Have you ever done that? Have you just gone about doing something and forgot the reason behind? Perhaps you heard the story of the, the lady who one day made a ham for her family. She began cooking it, and she took it out and put it on the counter, and before she cooked it, put it in the oven, she sliced off both ends of it, stuck it in the oven. Her husband, never seen this before, looked at her and said, honey, why did you slice off the ends of the ham? She paused and said, you know what? I don't, I don't know why. That's just the way my mom did it. So the woman picked up the phone and called her mom and said, mom, when you cook ham, you slice the ends off it. I did that to prepare the ham. Why did you do that? And the, the mother said, oh, you know what, dear? I, 
I don't know either. That's the way your grandmother did it. So they picked up the phone again, and this time they called the grandmother, and they said, Grandma, when you used to cook ham, you would always slice the ends of it before you would put it in the oven. What was the reason for that? And the grandmother said, oh, it's because my baking pan that I had was just not long enough for a whole ham, so I cut the ends off both ends. Well, that's a silly illustration, but it shows something very profound. Both what we do and why we do it matters. It is very easy for us to lose sight of why we do something, just being lost in the tradition of it. But we need to focus on both what we do and why we do it, because here's why. It is very possible to do the right things in the wrong way. It is very possible to do the right things in the wrong way. And that is exactly what was happening in the city of Corinth. These believers, they were celebrating the Lord's table, but they were doing it in such a way that it was actually hindering the body of Christ. They had forgotten the purposes behind the Lord's table. And as a result, they were actually harming one another rather than building one another up. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 17. Now, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. You see, when the Corinthians were taking communion, some people were being excluded. It seems like the poor people among them were being overlooked. Some people were dividing into cliques and they were getting together with people just like them. And some people were even getting drunk in the midst of the Lord's table. It was indeed a messy situation as the book of 1 Corinthians continually bears out. But instead of Paul just throwing the baby out with the bathwater and saying, fine, you guys don't even need to do this thing. Just stop it. Stop practicing the Lord's table at all. He offers them some corrective counsel. He comes alongside of them and says, listen, this thing is really important. This tradition, this symbol that the Lord has entrusted to his people is important. And in spite of the way that you're abusing it, I want to correct you and remind you of why we do what we do. And that's an important reminder for us today as well. So my simple point this morning, if you're taking notes, is this. We must remember the purpose of the Lord's table. In fact, as we'll see as we go through this text... A large function of the Lord's table in the life of God's people is remembering. Now, you may hear this, though, and think, Ryan, I, I get it. Like, it's important to know why we do what we do. That's critical. But, man, we are not like the, like the Corinthians here. I mean, the same things going on there is not going on here. I mean, who can get drunk off of the little, like, Dixie cup that we have? Like, those type of errors are not happening when we practice the Lord's table. You, you're right. You're right. We are not going into the same type of errors that was happening in Corinth. We're not doing the exact type of messing up that they were. But here's the reality. It is very possible for us to forget the purpose of the Lord's table as well. Maybe sometimes we can see communion as just a ritual to be checked off our spiritual to-do list. Maybe we can see communion as something that's rather useless and we just something to hurry through so we can get to the restaurant for lunch. Maybe we see communion as something like a get-out-of-jail-free card, some sort of absolution to all the wrong that we've done for that week. Or maybe we just have no idea what communion is all about. Regardless of your starting point, like the Corinthians, I think we would all be well served by remembering why the Lord has given us this tradition. Unfortunately, we don't have to guess about it because here clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul 
clearly spells out for us three, at least three purposes of taking the Lord's table. So I'd like to unpack those with us this morning briefly and talk about the purposes of the Lord's table here together. So number one, buckle up with me. The first purpose is this, affirmation of our unity in Christ. The first kind of task that Paul takes the Corinthians to is that the Lord's table was becoming a divisive affair for them. Look at verse number 18 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together, then it is not to eat the Lord's supper. In Paul's mind, This group of believers was so divided. They were so at each other's throats. They were so sowing disunity among them that what they were doing could no longer even rightly be called the Lord's table anymore. Paul's saying what you're doing, it's not even communion. It's not even the Lord's supper. So what's going on? Look at verse number 21. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? In the early church, part of the tradition of communion or the Lord's table was that it was served as part of a larger meal. And so the whole church would gather together and they would eat a meal together. And what appears to be happening here in Corinth is some people were hoarding or gobbling up all the food and excluding others. And what is more, it seems like it was the rich folks who were getting there early, getting the best seats and excluding the folks who would have benefited most from the meal. And Paul is saying, in so doing this behavior, you are despising the church of God. A very similar scenario plays out in James chapter 2, where I think he's probably describing a very similar scenario. James 2, verse 2. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in this good place, and you say to the poor person, stand over there, or sit here on the floor by my foot, so haven't you made distinctions among yourself and because judges with your evil thoughts? Unsurprisingly, Paul was hot. Look at verse number 22. What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. Paul is upset because it appears that the Corinthians has forgotten a fundamental truth, namely this. The gospel is a message of vertical and horizontal reconciliation. The gospel is a message of vertical and horizontal reconciliation. Here's what I mean. When you trust in Jesus, when you turn away from your sins and you put your hope in Christ and Christ alone, you, praise the Lord, get a right relationship with God. Amen? Amen. That was less than enthusiastic. Amen? But more happens in that moment than just this. When you trust in Jesus, not only are you vertically reconciled to God, your upward relationship is made right, but you are also horizontally reconciled to your brothers and sisters. You become part of the body of Christ, part of the people of God. You are now joined in spiritual communion, not just with God, but with one another. You know why we take communion together and not just at home? Because it is to be a communing affair, not just with the Lord, but with one another. Or if I could say it this way, through Jesus, we gain a father and a family. 
There is no such thing as just, it's, it's not this mentality of like just me and Jesus, baby. Wrong. That's not biblical New Testament Christianity. Christianity is, yes, I am right with God who is now my father, but I am part of a family. And these people matter to me. So when you come into the Lord's table and you start excluding certain people and, and overestimating other people and pushing the poor aside and exalting the rich, Paul says, I cannot commend you. I don't even know what to say to you. Because the message of the Lord's table is an occasion, a beautiful occasion to say, these are my people. When that bread touches my lips and the cup touches my lips, it is to be a sweet, sweet reminder that God loves me. That God loves these people too. Communion is to be a communal affair. It is where we remember that we have been made one with Jesus. And we have been made one by Jesus. We are together in this. So that's the first thing that happens. Communion is far more like a family meal. Than it is like going to the confession booth. Number two. Second purpose of communion is reflection on the work of Christ. Look at verses 23 and following, and there are some key phrases that we're going to hone in here. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So if you've ever celebrated the Lord's table at a church before, you've probably heard this passage of scripture read. And indeed, they're some of the most familiar in the Bible when it comes to the Lord's table. But there are three phrases in there that I think of our particular import. Phrase number one is this phrase, in remembrance of me. Can you say that? In remembrance of me. It's repeated twice. Verse number 24. This is my body, which is for you. Do this. Then verse number 25. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. In other words, communion is a rhythm of remembrance. That's why God put it into the life of his church. It is a, it is a rhythm of Remembrance. God wanted his people to regularly have an occasion to be reminded of what Christ had done on their behalf. How many of you remember when you were learning how to drive, right? And you put your hand on the wheel when you're learning how to drive and maybe your dad or mom or driver's ed teacher or grandpa or uncle was there in the car with you. And you're driving along and as a new driver, what do you tend to do? You tend to drift, and so you start drifting a certain way, and what does that wise, older driver do? They just subtly kind of reach over to the reel and, and give you a little tug. They just tug you back in the right direction. I think that's why God gave us communion in one sense. Anybody prone to spiritual amnesia here? To forget the Lord's kindness to them? To forget the Lord's mercy? To forget the Lord's promises? We are all, as the old song says, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We all have this tendency towards spiritual drift. And God, in his wisdom and mercy, says, I'm going to give you a symbol that I want you to practice regularly. And this symbol is just intended to 
give the wheel a little tug, back in the right direction, to remind you of the importance of my work on your behalf. And here's the thing, folks. We don't just remember the work of Jesus because we're commanded to, but because we need to. Like, communion is not like this burden, like, oh, we got to do communion again. It's going to take the service longer. No, communion is like, oh, thank you, Lord, because my heart tends to drift. And Lord, would you remind me again? Would you freshly remind me that I am a sinner saved by grace and that it's only by the work of Jesus? So this raises the question, what particularly do we need to remember if communion is done in remembrance of Jesus? Phrase number two, two little words, for you. Say that with me, for you. It's only two words, but maybe some of the most important in all of the Bible. For you. Look at verse number 11 or number 24 of chapter 11. This is my body, which is for you. You see, when Jesus came to earth, he did not come primarily as our example. Now, he was an example. He did live a perfect life, and he did stand up to suffering, and he did fight injustice, and he did live the life that was, that was ideal. He was our example. Jesus didn't primarily come as our teacher, although he certainly was our teacher. Jesus told us so many things, and he gives us the path on where to live. And while it is critical that Jesus is our example and is our teacher, Jesus fundamentally came for one person, one purpose, and one purpose alone. That is to be our substitute. Jesus came to take our place. Romans chapter 5, verse number 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse number 18. For God also suffered once for sin, the righteous, that's Jesus, for the unrighteous, that's us, that he might bring us to God. What these verses and so many others in scripture teach us is that on the cross, Jesus took our sin upon himself and bare the wrath of God that we deserve. He died in our place. Or as I like to say it all the time, Jesus lived the life we should have lived and he died the death we should have died. That's why Jesus came. And so when the Bible says that this was for you, it's emphasizing the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Every time, every time we eat that bread, we are to remember that Christ died both for our benefit and on our behalf. Jesus didn't come just to make our lives better. He came to rescue us from sin. Jesus came to do what only he could do. He did what we could not do for ourselves. He died for us. Phrase number three, the new covenant in my blood. This phrase requires a little more unpacking than the other two. In the Old Testament or under the old covenant, forgiveness was possible, but it came through animal sacrifice. And, and there was a problem with this. Namely, the, the forgiveness or the atonement that the animals brought was only ever temporary. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse number one. The law or the old covenant can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. What is the author saying there? Well, 
In the Old Testament, when you sinned, you had to go take a sacrifice to the temple. And then when you sinned again, guess what you had to do? Go take another sacrifice for the temple. Because the sacrifice kind of only dealt with the sin of the moment. It, it didn't have kind of this like shelf life that like kept covering beyond the moment of the sacrifice. So you could go there and get a clean slate. But then as soon as you walked out of the temple, guess what? You broke that slate again. You got to go get another slate. So you just keep bringing them back, keep bringing them back, keep bringing them back. Uh, sometimes we think of the Old Testament priest as like a pastor. And the Old Testament priest did have this role of teaching the people, that's for sure. But they were more like a butcher in reality. They were just constantly killing animals and slaughtering them on behalf of the people. Their job would have been gruesome in one sense as a graphic reminder that sin can't be addressed. It just keeps coming up. We don't have a solution to the problem. But if you read the Old Testament carefully, particularly in the prophetic books, there's this kind of little hint, this glimmer of hope that keeps coming up that maybe one day, Maybe coming someday in the future, there would be some sort of solution to the sin problem that we have. Then we get to the glorious promise in Jeremiah chapter 31 where it says this, For I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. No more band-aids. There's coming a day when sin will actually be addressed. Forgiveness will actually be permanent. God will remember our sins no more. They will be taken away completely. So when Jesus says this cup represents the new covenant in his blood, he was essentially promising that he himself would act as the sacrifice, not just to cover sins for a season, but to take away sins for all eternity. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse number 12. Christ entered the most holy place once for all. He didn't keep going back. He did it one time. Not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. And what did he achieve? Having achieved eternal redemption. He did the work. He didn't just make people savable. He saved them. Therefore, he is the mediator of the new covenant. And so when we drink that cup, we are to remember that our sins were placed on the head of the perfect Lamb of God. Remember in the Old Testament, I mentioned the sacrifice. One of the sacrifices that would happen is the person who committed the sin would take their hands and they would lay it on the heads of the animal to be sacrificed. It was a symbolic gesture to basically say, I'm transferring my guilt onto this animal. And then the priest would come with a knife and come behind the animal and slit its throat. I imagine blood just went everywhere when that happened. To just graphically portray the cost of sin. And so when we take that cup in our hand, we are lifting it and we are saying, Oh, Jesus, my sin was upon your shoulders. When you went to the cross, that should have been me. In fact, it was me. There my sins were upon you. And God, the Father, poured out his wrath on you. You took every last drop of God's wrath so there is no more despair for me. 
So when I drink this cup, I am celebrating the fact that the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Christ is enough. Or if I can say it very plainly, every time we drink, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We are triumphantly saying the power of Jesus's blood is greater than the power of my sin. Jesus' blood, his death is strong enough to cleanse your deepest state. We all got skeletons in the closet. Some of us got more closets than one. And Jesus' blood, friend, listen to me, is enough. It's enough. Not just to make you clean for a week, not to just give you a bath. His blood is enough to forgive you for all eternity. That is what we remember. Three. Third purpose of the Lord's table is an examination of our walk with Christ. The final purpose of the table is actually rather sobering. Look at verse number 27. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty against the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink the cup. So when we take the Lord's table, it is a call for us to examine our hearts. That's one of the blessings of this rhythm. It's just a call for us to regularly kind of think about what's going on in our life and deal with the sin in our heart. So that raises the question, right? What does it mean to partake of the table in an unworthy manner? Because if unworthy just means like sinful or being a sinner, then none of us could ever take it. But as you read the scripture, it's very plain that God never expects perfection of his people. That's not what it's saying here. That's not the call of the text. So if it doesn't mean like never do anything wrong, which none of us could ever take it then, what does it mean? Well, let me offer just three suggestions of what it could mean to take the cup in an unworthy manner. The first one and most fundamental is this. You can take the cup unworthily if you're not believing the gospel. One of the reasons I think that the Lord built this rhythm into the church's life is a regular opportunity to ask ourselves, am I truly trusting in Jesus? Being in a church building doesn't make you a Christian. You know, this is barely a church building right now, right? (laughs) Taking communion doesn't make you a Christian. Being around other Christians doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a follower of Jesus is if you've actually believed and trusted in the gospel. So the first way to not take the cup worthily is to ignore that simple reality. This is for those who have trusted in Jesus. And I would be remiss if I would just not say this right now. Are you trusting in Jesus? I'm not condemning you. I'm not angry with you. I don't think you're a hypocrite. I just want to really ask you right now, are you trusting in Jesus? Have you put your hope in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? Are you leaning on Christ, the solid rock, and him alone as your only hope of salvation? Because there is salvation found in no other name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So friend, if you don't know Right now, I beg you, I plead with you, would you trust in Jesus? 
I don't care how bad you are. I don't care what your starting place is. I don't care how old or young or black or white or rich or poor. Remember, we affirm our unity in Christ. We are one in Jesus if you trusted him. So come. Come to him. Trust in him. Believe in him. I beg you. I plead with you. If you are not trusting in the finished work of Christ and Christ alone, you are among friends. Come. The second way that we can drink or eat unworthily is by harboring areas of known sin in our lives. I think God gave us communion for us to keep short accounts of sin. There's two ways to approach sin. You can either fight it or yield to it. I'm not talking about perfection, right? I'm talking about fighting or yielding to it. Anybody ever, I know, holy people here, anybody ever struggled to fall asleep in church? Okay, if you're not raising your hand, repent. Don't take the Lord's table. And there's, there's two types of sleepers in church. I can get Pastor Rod up here to testify. There's this type of sleeper. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nudge your husband, Carrie. There's this one. What are they doing? They're fighting sleep, right? They're not winning perfectly, but they're fighting. And then there's this type. Y'all, I don't care. And we can take the same approach to sin, can we not? Sometimes we can fight. And we don't always win, but we fight. And we fight, and we fight. And other times we just lay down in that mess. And I think what the warning is here is if you're laying down, this is an occasion for you to repent. To really examine your heart and say, oh, sin is bad. This pleases my God whom I love and I need to turn away from it. The third way that we can partake of the table in an unworthy way is kind of what's going on here in Corinth. Remember, they're devising. They're not thinking of others. They're being self-centered. Jesus said it this way over in Matthew chapter five. So if you're offering a gift on the altar, is that a spiritual thing, by the way? Giving a gift of offering, is that spiritual? Yeah, it's a holy thing. And there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the author, altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother and sister and then come and give your gift. Whoa, that's high stakes. Even if you're doing something really spiritual, but you're living in disunity with other people, there's bitterness, there's resentment, there's sin that you're clinging on to that you're not willing to deal with then leave the gift, go get right, then come back and you give the gift. The Lord doesn't say don't give the gift. He says deal with the sin. In this way then, this call to self-examination, listen, this is not condemnation. It's an invitation. Right now, Jesus is saying to you, come to the table. Just deal with your mess first. Come to the table. You are invited, but repent Turn away from your sins. Deal with your issues and then celebrate my grace and goodness because I got enough for you. There's always room for another seat here. Look, here is the bedrock reality and it is good news for all of us. Though this warning is certainly meant to be sobering, it is not meant to be discouraging because the Lord's table reminds us of this wonderful, wonderful reality. Believers are not perfect people. Amen? But they are repentant ones. 
believers are not perfect people, but they are repentant ones. So if you're imperfect this morning, come on, but repent. And the Lord will receive you because here's what God's word says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I want to celebrate the Lord's table here together, but I want us to come as imperfect repenters to that table this morning. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray. The band's going to lead us in a song. I just want us to worship the Lord. Okay, worship the Lord together. You can sit, you can stand, you can do whatever you want during that song. And I'm going to come back up and I'm going to lead us in a time of eating the bread and drinking the cup and then we're going to close together, okay? Use this moment of silence to really be an imperfect repenter before the Lord. Do three things. Affirm your unity with these people. Remember, Christ died not just for you, but for us. Two, remember what Jesus has done for you. Take a moment and turn your eyes to that cross called Calvary and reflect on that precious sacrifice that was done on your behalf. And three, take a minute and examine your heart and say, Lord, search me, know me. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Can we do that together? Let's worship the Lord. Father, we thank you so much for the sacrifice of Jesus and this wonderful reminder, this way to remember what he has done in our place. But Lord, if there are those among us that haven't trusted in your son, I pray right now they would trust, right now, that they would see Jesus as so beautiful so worthy that they couldn't help but put their faith and hope in him. Lord, for those that do know your son, I pray that we would turn from our sins right now. Thank you for this reminder that we need to eat and drink in a worthy manner. Cleanse us. Forgive us. Know us, Lord. Show yourself strong in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.